Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, my freshman year in college, down the hall from me, there was a triple, which meant that there were three guys living in that room instead of two. And the guys living there were a business major, a philosophy major, and an art major, which sounds like the setup to a bad joke, and it kind of is. Um, but these guys were exactly what you would expect. If you walked into their room, you would find uh, the business major, very kind of you know, got things together. He was doing his homework because that's the most profitable thing for him to do. The philosophy major would be, you know, sitting on the floor doing yoga, th- thinking deep thoughts. I'm not kidding about this. Um, and then the art major, I, you never know what the art major was going to be up to. Uh, one time I walked by their room and he called me and he was like, Clayton, Clayton, you got you." you got to hear this. And I'm like, okay, maybe he found a new band or some album that he really likes. And when I walked into the room, he had two stereos set up on either side of the room. He walked over to one stereo and he hit play. And this like droning electronic music came out. Just like, and I'm like, okay, it's not not like my favorite genre, but this is, it's interesting. Okay. Like I'll, I'll listen to this. Held up his hands though. And he runs over to the other side of the room hits play on this stereo and these like screaming metal guitars and he stood in the middle of the room and did this isn't it awesome and I'm like yeah it's really awesome Ryan good good for you man backed out of the room when the topics of science and religion come up this is how a lot of people experience it like two songs that cannot or should not be played together. Both inside and outside the church, there are people who will tell you that there is a conflict between science and religion and science and the Bible. On the one hand, there are people who, uh, atheists, who will say, you know what? Science has eliminated the need for God as an explanation for things. We've got enough information about the world that we can explain it all rationally, empirically, and religion is no longer needed. On the other hand, you have people who love Jesus, love the Bible, and they read what's in the Bible, and they hear the claims of modern science, and they say, these are incompatible. And since we want to hold on to the Bible, we have to throw out that. We cannot listen to what they say. They insist that you have to choose between these two songs. Which song do you want to listen to? Because you cannot play them both at the same time. There are two different songs in two different genres in two different keys, and there is no harmony between them. Now, when the majority of us hear stuff like that, we just don't know what to do. Because if you're a Christ follower, you do want to hold on to the Bible. You think, this, this is the book that tells me who Jesus is and what he's done. And all of my hope is found in the message that's here. What would I do without that? On the other hand, you've got a smartphone in your pocket. And you, you, you use it and you go to the doctor when you're sick. And you're looking around and you're thinking, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of things that show that science has something going for it. And so I'm pretty sure, you know, they're, they're not all crazy. And so we don't know what to do. And what we end up doing is compartmentalizing science and scripture. Uh, Sometimes we sing the science song. We we use technology and medicine over here. Sometimes we play the religion song. We read our Bible, we pray, we go to church, but we try not to think of them at the same time. But for a lot of people, the dissonance is too much, especially with young people, uh, people who have studied uh, young adults who walk away from Christianity after they uh, have moved out of their home and no longer are required to go to church by their parents. Those who do, a quarter of them say the reason they walked away from their faith is because the faith they learned as a child, they found to be incompatible with the science they learned as they grew up. 
Uh, right now, the stats say that 52% of students currently in school will go into science-related fields. And what that means is that more and more, this question of how do you bring these two together is not going to be a question that people can avoid. And so as a church, we don't want to avoid it either. Over the next few weeks, we are going to tackle the questions of science and scripture in a series called All Creation Sings. Uh, the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about those two uh, first chapters of the Bible in Genesis, the ones that caused the most controversy about the creation of the world, the creation of humans. Uh, the final week, we're going to talk about how the study of science and scripture leads us to awe and wonder and worship. But this week, what I'm going to talk about is kind of the big picture of what is science and how should we relate to it. And here's the claim I want to make. Here's the thing, the big idea. I think that as Christ followers, we ought to be the people who are the most eager to study the world scientifically, not in spite of what the Bible says, but precisely because of what the Bible says. Let me say that again. Those of us who love Jesus and read the Bible, we ought to be the most eager, the most enthusiastic about science, not in spite of what the Bible says, but precisely because of what the Bible says. In other words, I wanna show you how science and scripture sing in harmony. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 8. It's a worship song written by David here. Let me read it to you. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before I dive into what this passage means, I want to explain what we mean by science, because there's a popular misunderstanding about what science is. When most people think of science, they think of it as sort of a bank of information. Uh, someone who is in, in science learns a whole lot of facts, a whole lot of knowledge about the world, and that's what makes them a scientist. They know about planets or protons or penguins or something that, that is out in nature. But strictly speaking, that is not what science is. Now, the way Carl Sagan put it is this. He said, science is a way of thinking much more than it is a body of knowledge. It's a way of thinking more than a body of knowledge. Now, science does generate a whole lot of knowledge, a lot of facts that you can know about natural things, but knowing a lot of facts about nature might help you win Jeopardy, but it will not make you a scientist. To be a scientist, you have to learn to think like a scientist. You need to learn how to use the scientific method. The, the basic premise of the scientific method is this. You need to base your ideas about the world on evidence from the world. You gotta base your ideas about the world on evidence from the world. I'm gonna break it down here. I'm gonna kind of do an oversimplification of this, but this is the way the scientific method works. It starts with observations. You look out into the world, you pay attention to what's going on there, and your observations, they lead to questions. This is sort of a natural thing. Children do this all the time. Why do leaves change color in the fall? Why do kids look like their parents most of the time? Why, how far away is the moon? Why is it that we only see one side of it? How come bugs can walk on water, but I can't? Why do my fingers get pruney when I take a bath? 
What scientists do is they take this natural instinct to ask questions and they hone it and develop it so that they become really good at asking questions. These questions, they lead to forming a hypothesis. The hypothesis is basically an educated guess on how to answer that question. So this is the explanation for the thing that I saw, but it's something you don't know for sure. You don't know if that's the right explanation. So you've got to check it. And here's how you do that. From the hypothesis, you make a prediction. You say, okay, if this is true, my explanation is true, what else would be true? So if plants need sunlight to live, that's my hypothesis, my prediction is if I leave my plant in the dark, it will die. If my hypothesis is the earth is round, then the prediction is it will cast a round shadow on the moon during a lunar eclipse. If my hypothesis is a candle needs oxygen to burn, then my prediction is if I put a glass over it, it will stop burning. So once you have a prediction, what you do is you test to see if it comes true. Usually, this takes the form of an experiment, a kind of controlled conditions to, that, that scientists design to make sure that they can actually test the thing they want to test. Uh, that's kind of what it means to be a scientist, is to know how to design that and evaluate those experiments. But sometimes the test comes in the form of more observations. Uh, when you are uh, making a hypothesis about something out in the world, like how the planets move or how you know, dinosaurs and prehistoric life worked and uh, the migration of birds and things like that, your test usually involves going out and finding more observations, more data from the world. But either way, what the test does is make sure that you make conclusions based on actual evidence, actual data, not just your intuition, not just what makes sense in your mind. The next step is to evaluate your hypothesis. Once you've tested it, once you've gathered the data, you say, okay, is my guess true? Does this confirm it or does it invalidate the hypothesis? And then what you do is you say, okay, I'm gonna publish to the world, here's my conclusion, here's what I found out, here's my evidence, and you're gonna let other people speak into that, test it, retry it, and say, maybe this is a way to explain it or that's a way to explain it, but you evaluate what information you found. But here's the interesting thing. Once you do that, the cycle starts again. Once you evaluate what you've seen, you end up making more observations and you have new questions and the cycle goes round and around and around. And as science goes around this cycle, our understanding of the world gets more and more accurate. You ever had the experience where you hear something and you think, scientists just keep changing their minds about things. You hear something on the news or maybe you go to the doctor and you say, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you said that this was okay, but now you're telling me, don't eat that, don't do that. You, it, we've found out that you've been killing yourself this entire time and that, that you don't do that anymore. And you say, well, they keep changing their mind. Do, can we even trust them in the first place? How do we know what they're saying now is accurate if they might change their mind in a while? And it seems like maybe it's not working. But actually, this is a sign that science is working, not a sign, a sign that it's not. Think about it. You don't want scientists today to say the same thing that scientists said 10 years ago or 30 years ago or 100 years ago because our knowledge keeps getting better. But you still ask, well, how do I know that if science keeps saying new things that I can trust what they're saying right now? Here's why. Because they are offering you the current best ideas that we have. They may change, but until a new idea comes along and actually gets tested, you don't have any reason to believe that that's true rather than this. But let me explain it this way. Let's say later today, you are hanging out during the Bears game, okay? Some of you, this is not true because you're in church right now. This is 11 o'clock. I know, I know who you are. But you're hanging out during the Bears game. You're not watching the Bears game, though. But someone you're hanging out with says, hey, what's the score? Who's winning? You say, well, I think the, the Bears are in the lead. That might not sound realistic to you, but in this scenario, that's what's going on. But then your friend says, no, 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 no. I think Detroit's winning. And you say, oh, when did you check the score? 
And they say, well, I didn't check the score. I, I just think that they're winning. And how do you respond to that? You, you say, well, you could be right. Like that might be accurate, but do you have any evidence? Have you checked? Like it's a hypothesis that's been thrown out there. And until you test it, until you go back and say, we have new information, there's no reason to believe that new idea. You should stick with the old idea. This is how science works. Ideas change over time, but you cannot say the current ideas are wrong until you use the scientific method to give evidence that they're wrong and a new idea is better. This is actually what is so powerful about this process. It forces people to back up their ideas with evidence. And bad ideas, ideas that don't have a lot of evidence, do not survive this process very well. It's amazing what happens. Uh, ever since people have been using this uh, systematically and deliberately in history, human understanding of the world has grown exponentially. It's an incredibly powerful tool. But let's go back to the Bible. I want to show you four ideas from this passage that are central to Christian belief that not only make the scientific method possible, but actually encourage us to use the scientific method. Here's the first one. We can study the world because it was created. We can study the world because it was created. Look at verse one here. It says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Over and over again, as you read the Bible, the Bible says the world was made by God and because of that, it reflects what God is like. Some of his character, some of his qualities are, are demonstrated through what the world is like. That's what it means when it talks about uh, your name is majestic in all the earth. Someone's name is their reputation. It's the way someone is described and talked about. And so it, what, what it's saying is you can look at the world and you can see something of what God is like through that. And when it says your glory is set in the heavens, the same idea is there. Your glory, someone's glory is when what's amazing about them is shining forth for all to see, to say, oh, that's what they're like. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that cool? And so the world reflects what God is like. And according to the Bible, the God who made the world is wise and thoughtful and intelligent. He is a consistent God. He is a God of order and beauty, not a God of chaos. And so if you believe that there is a wise and beautiful intelligence behind the world, then you're more likely to look at the world and see it as a place of order and beauty, a world that actually makes sense. In the ancient world, this wasn't always the case. In the ancient world, people believed that different aspects of the world were run by different small g gods. Uh, different spirits, different forces were behind what you could see going on. So you had a god of the sky and a god of the sea, and you had a god of the, the earth and a spirit of that mountain and a spirit of the tree and a spirit of the river and uh, uh, demons of disease and all sorts of different forces that were not always on the same page. And they also would very often change their mind based on their changing mood. They would do whatever they wanted, and you could not count on them to be consistent all the time. And if you wanted to explain what happened in the world, you'd have to say, well, it's that spirit, that God's, you know, that they're, they're like a, a, a three-year-old throwing a tantrum. I, I can't predict them. I don't understand them. Uh, that's what's going on. If you looked at the world in that way, and you did not see some kind of order or logic behind things, it is very unlikely you're going to go into nature and study it in a systematic scientific way. In order for science to work, you have to have a worldview that says there, that there is a reason to think there's an order behind the world. How many of you have done, ever done an escape room? You ever gone to an escape room? Okay, for those of you who have not done an escape room, here's the premise. They lock you in a room that's full of puzzles, and if you solve the puzzles before the timer goes out, they let you out of the room. Which, now that I describe it that way, sounds like an evil villain made this up, but I promise they're very, very fun, okay? So my friends and I went to an escape room, and it was a, a game-themed escape room. So we walked into the room, and there was a chessboard set out on a table, and kind of was mid-game. And there were posters on the wall that depicted the rooms from the board game Clue. 
and there were life-size Tetris pieces sitting out. And there was a Scrabble board that had misspelled words on it. And we looked at this, and our immediate reaction, like if we had walked into a room like this anywhere else, we would have said, whoever decorated this room was insane. Like, this is nuts. This, this, what is going on here? There is no sense this is random and weird. But why didn't we say that? Because we walked into that room assuming that there was someone who intelligently put this world together, this room together. That, that the things that were there were not random. They were not chaotic. They were put there for a purpose and a reason. And so when we walked in, instead of saying, whoa, this is nuts, this is crazy, we said, all right, let's study it. Let's understand it. It looks like chaos, but as we look in, we believe there's an order underneath it. Let's discover what that order is. This is how science works. You are not going to study the world if you think the world has no underlying consistency or logic. But as Christ followers, the reason we use the scientific method is not in spite of the fact that we think the world was created, but specifically because we believe in a creator who created in an intelligent and consistent way. That's the first idea. Here's the second idea. We need to study the world because we are limited. We need to study the world because we are limited. In our culture, if you want to sort of do a kind of a shorthand way of talking about someone who's smart, you use the image of a scientist, right? So if you Google the word smart person or intelligent person, whose picture pops up a thousand times in the image search? Albert Einstein, right? Like he's our image. Like that means smart, right? You know a lot of things. Or the image is a picture of someone writing on a blackboard with a bunch of scientific formulas up there. And, and you say, that's what the image of knowing a lot of stuff is. But if you actually talk to a scientist, they will not tell you that science is about all the things that they know. They'll actually tell you that science is about all the things that they don't know. That's actually the roots of science. It's, it's what drives science is the realization that there are a whole lot of things that we can't explain or we misunderstand or we do not know about. And a scientist is driven by the fact that they know they are limited, that they are ignorant of a whole lot of things. This is a profoundly biblical way to view yourself. Look, look at Psalm 8 again. Look at verse, verse 3. It says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You ever had that feeling? You ever been far from city lights on a clear night? And you look up and you can see the Milky Way. Maybe you've stood at the base of a redwood, looked up. Maybe you stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and it just kept going and going and going. Or maybe you've never done any of those things, but you sat on your couch and you watched planet Earth. <laughs> but you had the same feeling. The world is so big and humans are so small. For, for the psalmist, that feeling drives him to marvel at the love of God. In the, in the scope of all of this, why would God pay attention to us? Why would he fix his special care on us? Why would he love us? It's incredibly humbling. But that feeling of the world's bigness and our smallness, it doesn't just leave us humble before God. It actually leaves us humble before the world. There is so much we don't know. And this is where the scientific method begins, remember? It begins with observations. It begins with questions. And if you think you've got everything figured out, you're not going to ask many questions. You've got to believe that there's so much more that you don't know if you're going to start saying, what about this? What about that? How does that work? How do you explain that? Questions are fueled by ignorance. And if, you, if you're not curious enough, you won't ask them. This is why humility is a key virtue for science. But it's more than just realizing you're small. It's also the awareness that you're probably wrong. 
This is really important. Science is not just about going to the blank spots on the map and filling them in. It's actually going to the parts of the map you think you've already got charted and redrawing the map in a more accurate way. This is another place where the Bible and science are in deep agreement. The Bible teaches that human beings are naturally deceptive. Self-deceptive, I should say. We want to believe all sorts of false things. We want to twist facts to confirm what we already think is true. And the Bible pushes us, pushes us to doubt our own understanding. This is what Proverbs 3 says. Do not lean on your own understanding. Because if we, if we lean on our own understanding, we're going to trick ourselves and believe false things we want to believe. The scientific method is based on the same idea. It's the reason you test your hypothesis and publish your results and you repeat your experiments because you know you might be wrong and you want to confirm whether or not something is true or not. Good science requires awareness of your limitations. It requires humility. Now, this should be a place where followers of Jesus excel. Unfortunately, we kind of have a reputation for the opposite. This is one of the things that, again, when people study uh, uh, young adults who walk away from faith as they grow up, a third of those who walk away from faith, one of the things they object to is they say, Christians always seem to be so sure of the things that they knew. They seem too confident that they knew all the answers. Now, there are areas that we can be confident. There are things the Bible tells us that you do not need to waver on. Things like Jesus is God, and we are sinners in need of a Savior. And God's love is the only thing that will rescue us. And the cross of Jesus Christ is our hope. And Jesus rose from the dead. These are things you can say with confidence. But in many areas, especially in the area of science, the Bible does not nail down all the answers. And when it comes to science, let's be honest, most of us, many of us, are deeply ignorant. Some of that is simply because we haven't studied science since we were sophomores in high school. And we just stopped paying attention to that area when we weren't forced to do it. And yet, I've heard many Christians speak with a confidence that they have not earned about scientific things. Have you ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? You ever heard of this? This is fascinating. Uh, Psychologists have discovered this effect that people, when, when they study how people evaluate their own skill, that people who know just a little bit about a topic, a little bit about a field, vastly overestimate their competence in that area. So they actually looked and they said, people who are in the bottom 25% of skill or knowledge in an area will usually overestimate how good they are in that area. It's the reason why 93% of people think that they're above average drivers. (laughs) It's all of you. It's why a majority of students in a class will usually rate themselves in the top half of the class. It's the reason why, on average, 30 to 40% of people who work at a company will rate uh, rate themselves as one of the top five performers in their company. And maybe you've experienced this. If you have genuine expertise in an area, whether you're a musician or a medical doctor or a mechanic, you have probably run into people who have watched a couple of videos on YouTube and they think they know as much as you do. The reason this happens is because when you only know a little bit about something, you don't know how much you don't know. And the more you learn, the more you realize how much there still is to learn. There are a lot of us in this boat when it comes to science. We've read a book about creation and evolution, and we think we're ready to debate a geneticist. Or we spend an evening watching videos online, and we think we can go head-to-head with a geologist or an astronomer. You know what real scientists think when we do this? They have no idea how much they don't know. They don't know how much they don't know. What we should be doing is this. We should come humbly and say, you know, I'm limited. I don't have training and knowledge in this area. I don't know a lot of things about this. I do know some of the things the Bible says and what I think that they mean. And I've got questions, but I want to learn. I want to let my assumptions be challenged. I want to hear from you, someone who has more expertise and experience than I do. 
Now, of course, on the science side of things, there are limits as well that need to be acknowledged. There, there are many scientists, folks like Richard Dawkins and Steven Pinker and Stephen Hawking, who are excellent scientists, but when they start talking about things outside of science, they, they're, they're crossing the bounds of what the scientific method actually can be applied to. I mean, look at, the, look at the scientific method again. What is the scientific method based off of? Observations and testing and experiments. But what happens when you get outside of the things that can be observed and tested empirically? Science is great in those bounds, but what happens when you get outside of that? How do you observe meaning and purpose? How do you test for beauty or love or justice? What, what experiment do you run to figure out what is right or wrong? Science is great at studying what is, but it is almost useless in telling us what ought to be. I ran across this great analogy in a, one of the books that we're recommending for this series. It's called Can Science Explain Everything by John Lennox. Uh, the, just as an aside, uh, the books we're recommending for the series, we were a little late in ordering them, so they're not available this week, uh, but we will have books in the bookstore that we're recommending. A number of you have asked, like, hey, what, what, what book should I read about this for this series? Um, they'll be here next week. This is one of them. Uh, Lennox, one of the analogies he uses is he says, imagine you have an Aunt Matilda. I have no idea why he's that specific, you, but imagine you have an Aunt Matilda. He says, Aunt Matilda bakes a cake. And you go over to her house to see the cake, and along with you, you bring uh, the top scientists in the world. And so you, you bring the scientists and you say, I want you to tell me what you can learn based on science about Aunt Matilda's cake. And so the nutritionist says, well, here's the number of calories in the cake, and here's how uh, it'll interact with your body as you digest it. And the botanists say, well, here's the plants where all the ingredients came from. And the bi biochemists will say, well, here's the uh, chemical structure, the fats and the sugars and the proteins. And the physicists will say, well, here are the subatomic particles, the fundamental particles that, that make up the cake and so on. When all the scientists are done, you, you wonder, have they fully explained the cake? Have any of them explained why the cake exists? Will any of them be able to tell you the meaning and the purpose of the cake based on their scientific study? No. And that's not a problem because science isn't designed to answer those questions. But who can tell you the meaning, the why, the purpose of the cake? Aunt Matilda, right? Because she's the one who made the cake. She can tell you the purpose of the cake. I told the story last night and someone came up to me after the sermon and they said, you didn't answer the most important question about that. How did the cake taste? <laughs> like, you are right. That's what we should be doing. We should be eating cake. Science is incredibly powerful but it has limits. And it's not the only way to know true things. Let's talk about the third reason Christ followers should use the scientific method. We ought to study the world because we are elevated. We ought to study the world because we are elevated. Studying the world is not an optional add-on to human life. It's actually built into the calling that God placed on humanity from the beginning. God made humans with a job in his universe, and that job actually drives us to learn and understand more about the world that he created. That job is actually described starting in verse 5. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the workers of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and all that swim on the paths of the seas. This is a, a poetic riff off of Genesis 1 where God says, let's make humans in our own image, in our likeness, so that they can rule over the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the, the animals and everything. What, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that we are supposed to represent God. God decided that out of all of the creatures that he made, he would elevate one species above the others. 
Not to dominate, not to exploit the others, but to rule over the world the way God rules the world in love and care, cultivating the other creatures. And so our job as image bearers is to go into the world and actually draw out the potential in creation to cause creation to flourish. By the way, this is the reason why caring for the environment, caring for God's world is a biblical value. It's part of our responsibility, part of our assignment as God's image bearers. But in order to do our job as the rulers of God's world, we have to actually understand the world. We've got to study it. And so God has built into humans this incredible capacity to observe and think and reason, and God wants us to use that to learn about the rest of creation. This is why, contrary to popular perception, Christians historically have been champions of the life of the mind, and science in particular. Let me show you a picture here. These are a number of people. Uh, Let me explain who each one is. Starting on the, the far left here, Copernicus. Copernicus is one of the first people to demonstrate that the earth revolves around the sun rather than the other way around. Next to him is Galileo. Galileo, 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 Galileo. (laughs) Galileo defended Copernicus's view, and he was one of the first people uh, to develop advanced um, uh, telescopes where they could actually view things in the heavens. Uh, He was the first person to ever see Saturn's rings and Jupiter's moons, really important uh, astronomer. Kepler, another astronomer, uh, he formulated the laws that describe planetary motion. Uh, Then you got Francis Bacon, the most delicious of all scientists. He was the first one actually to formulate the scientific method, to kind of codify that. The the thing that I explained before, he's the one who kind of uh, first put put that to paper. There's Rene Descartes. He was a philosopher, mathematician, early scientist. Isaac Newton, probably the most important physicist or scientist at all before Albert Einstein. Uh, If if there was Google back then and you look for smart person, his picture would have popped up uh, instead of of Albert Einstein. Uh, He formulated the laws of gravity. He invented calculus and he ruined high school for a lot of people. Uh, Robert Boyle is known as the father of modern chemistry. Uh, And Antoine van Leeuwenhoek, which I have no idea if I'm saying that right, sorry, Dutch people, uh, he was the first person to observe microorganisms through a microscope. He's called the father of microbiology. Now, do you know how I picked those eight people to put on the screen? I just looked at a list of the most important figures in the scientific revolution. And so I, I put those up there. You know what they all have in common besides being scientists? They all loved Jesus. Every one of them, every one of them, they believed in God and that's what motivated them to study the natural world. Let let me give you a few quotes from them. This is what Copernicus said about why he studied the world. He said, the universe was wrought for us by a supremely good and orderly creator. Galileo said this, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with senses, reason, and intellect has intended us to forego their use by some other means and give us knowledge which we can attain by them. Kepler said this, Those laws of nature are within the grasp of the human mind. God wanted us to recognize them by creating us after his own image so that we could share in his own thoughts. During the time of the scientific revolution, there was no genuine conflict between the sciences and faith. Uh, Sometimes there were scientific ideas that came up that that caused some controversy. They they were against the, the grain of the traditional understanding of things. But here's what you have to understand. The work of science was being done by Christians. So this was not a debate between people who were believed in God and people who didn't, and and they were resisting each other. This was a debate among people who were followers of Jesus about how we should understand the world. It was actually medieval Christians who invented the university. If you wanted to find information about the world, you would have to go to a monastery. That was the place where books, not just about theology and the Bible, but books about the natural world and information we knew from all sorts of different fields were collected and compiled before the printing press. 
in seminary from the Middle Ages up through the 1800s. If someone was going to be trained to be clergy or a theologian, when they went to seminary, they had to study the natural sciences as part of the, the, the curriculum. Ultimately, it was Christians who pioneered the modern scientific method. The, the story that there has his, historically been this great conflict between science and faith was one that did not come up until the 19th century. It, it was kind of put forth by some anti-Christian historians who wanted to bash the church and it was actually, ironically, latched onto by fundamentalist Christians who said, yeah, we think there's a conflict too. And they both declared, we're at war. But the reality on the ground, that had never been the case. And I don't think it should be the case today. What would it look like for you and me to be advocates of science? Let me suggest three things that we can do. Here's the first one. Learn about science. It's really that simple. Learn about science. When was the last time you read a book about science? Some of you are like, Never, <laughs> never, like, why would I do that? Um, I'm not talking about uh, like an apologetics book. Some of you like apologetics, you know, that help defend the truth of Christianity. Um, I I'm talking about a book that was simply about the wonders of the world God made. A book about space exploration or genetics or bees or bacteria or whatever, just to learn what's going on out in the world. Some of you have avoided learning about science since you graduated, uh, but I wanna entice you back in. Maybe you won't read a book, but there are lots of other ways to learn. Uh, you pick up a science podcast. There's a ton of really good ones out there. Uh, watch a documentary, learn something new, expand your understanding of God's world. It's good for your mind and for your soul. Second, actively resist pseudoscience. Actively resist pseudoscience. The internet is both so good and so bad for learning about science. There is so much good information out there to learn from, but it's also really easy for bad information to spread. So here's what I would like to ask us to do. Let's make it a habit to, whenever we see a Facebook post or a news article or an email that's forwarded to us, to check it before we share it, okay? To check it before we share it. Do a little searching about it to see what study that claim was based off of. Uh, what credentials do the, does the person who did the study have? Are there any mainstream sources that either confirm or reject this idea? There are even some science fact-checking sites, like, sites like scifact.org, where they check things that have been in the news about science. A great way to do this actually is to find a friend who's been trained in science. And when you see something that you're curious about, actually run it by them. Say, hey, what do you think about this? Does this look legit? And even if it's not their field of study, they probably have better instincts, better skills in identifying bad science than you do. Overall, let's just make it a practice to not believe the things we read on the internet until we have confirmed them with some evidence. And please, please do not repost things that you have not done that with. Here's the third thing. If you are a student, a young person in particular, consider going into a scientific field for Christ's sake. Go into a scientific field for Christ's sake. We need more people who love Jesus and who are in environmental science and medicine and robotics and particle physics. And if you go into those fields, you need to know that God doesn't look on that and say, oh, what are they doing? He looks on that and he smiles. Sometimes we think about God calling people and it's always into super spiritual sounding things. You know, you're gonna be a pastor, you're gonna be a missionary, you're gonna work with the poor. And God does call people into that. But he also calls people into lots of other fields. And if God has given you gifts and passions for science, there's a good chance that that's what he's calling you to do, that that's what he's designed you and made you for. So I wanna encourage you to go for it. Science and engineering are incredible ways to carry out God's mission and express his image in the world. I am praying for the day when Christ followers are known. We have a reputation for embracing science and being, having some expertise in science. And here's why I pray for that. Here's why I think this matters. 
Because there are a whole lot of people who will not even consider Jesus because Jesus' people are ignorant of science. This is true. The, the problem is not, for most people who walk away from their faith or don't consider the Christian faith because of science, it's not that they studied science and science suddenly proved there, that there was no need for God. It just, no, we don't need that. There are a whole lot of people who are interested in God. And, they, and when they learn science, they then look at the church, they look at God's people, and they say, oh man, these people say all sorts of unscientific and anti-scientific things. And I don't care how much I'm curious about God. If I, if I have to become ignorant like them in order to know their God, I'm not going to listen to their message. And so they walk away. Please, let's not let that happen. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but what if there are things that the Bible says that, that ought to be true and we need to believe them, but scientists look at that and they say, ah, that sounds like nonsense. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about what the Bible does and doesn't say about science over the next couple of weeks. But for... For the most part, let's say this, as far as we are able, let's not discredit the gospel by being ignorant of science. Here's the final reason why the teaching of scripture should make us more, not less scientific. We should want to study the world because the world is loved. We should want to study the world because the world is loved. If you talk to a scientist and you say, why did you go into science? Almost every one of them is gonna tell you a story that involves wonder. They're going to tell you that when they were a kid or when they were in school, they, they discovered something amazing. They looked through a microscope and they saw an amoeba and they said, really, that's there? Or they read a book about the rainforest and they said, can this actually be real? They, they had a science teacher who explained how stars were formed and about supernova and black holes and they said, wow. And a spark was lit inside of them and they had to know more about this. Where did that spark come from? Who lit it? Why is it that we find the world so awe-inspiring? I think that spark comes from God because God absolutely loves and delights in the world. Psalm 8 is actually quoted four times in the New Testament. And verse 6 is quoted three of those times. It says, you made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet. Like I said before, this verse is about the calling that humans have to rule over the creation the way God does. But in the New Testament, you know what one particular person this verse is applied to all three times? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one who does what the rest of us could not do. He is the one who actually loves and rules over creation the way we were supposed to. He is the true human who fulfills humanity's calling. He is the one who takes the throne of creation and rules it in love. Jesus is creation's true king. Now in Hebrews chapter 2, one of the places where this verse is quoted it explains how Jesus was able to take the throne of creation. It says he took the throne because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I want you to think about that. How did Jesus take the throne of the world? By dying for the world, dying for humanity, but not just humanity. The, the, the New Testament makes clear that what Jesus is doing is actually reclaiming, restoring, renewing the entire creation. That's his goal. So how much does God love the world? He loves it enough to die in order to keep it. There are some of you who love science because you feel this incredible affection for the world. You feel this love and delight as you look out at the world. If you are a Christ follower, I want to affirm that instinct in you and tell you that you do not have to let that love for the world, that love for science, be in competition or tension with your love for Jesus. They both work together. If you are not a Christ follower, you're here and you're just exploring, trying to figure this out. 
Or maybe you're here and you're skeptical. You're, you're sitting here with crossed arms thinking, there's no way. I, 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 cannot, I cannot embrace that because I would have to leave behind what I know about science. Here's what I want to say to you. I want you to recognize where that love comes from, that love for the world. I want you to recognize where that delight in created things comes from. It comes from the God who made the world and loves the world. God loves creation so much, he would rather die than let it be destroyed. If you came to God, it would not mean giving up your love for the world or your passion for science. It would mean fulfilling it. Because you would be coming to the one who is the source of that love and that passion. If you hear dissonance between scripture and science, and that has kept you from considering Jesus, I, I want you to remove that barrier. I want you to lean in and listen again. Because I want you to hear that both songs are playing and both songs are beautiful. And they are in harmony with one another. Why? Because the one who wrote them and performs them is the same person. If you love creation, love the creator. If you love creation, love the source of that love. He loves creation more than you ever could. And coming to him would only make that love stronger. Here's how I want to close. I want to close by praying for those of you who work or study in a scientific field. So if that's you, if you are a science teacher, if you are, uh, do research in science, you work in a lab, you are an engineer, you are in medicine, you are a student studying science, I would like you to stand up right now, okay? Let the nerds arise. <laughs> because we want to pray for you. And we want, to, we want to honor the calling that God has put on your life as a calling from him, okay? So uh, let, let me pray for you and pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have made a good and beautiful and intelligent world, that you have made it wonderful, and you have given us minds to learn about it. What a gift, God. God, I want to pray for each of these women and men that you would bless them in the work that they do. God, I pray that you would give them minds to understand their field, that as they study and research, as they explain, as they put into practice the things that have been discovered by science, God, I pray that you would give them great wisdom and understanding above and beyond what would come naturally to them. God, I pray that you would give them uh, hearts that love you because of what they study and know. God, I pray that the wonder, the awe that drew them into their field would be uh, fanned into flame, that if it has died out, that you would give them more and more of that, that wonder so that it overflows into worship for you. God, I pray that you would give them skill, that they would work hard and work well and their work would be a blessing to others. God, I pray that you would give them a voice with others who work with them, maybe people who are skeptical that someone could be a Christ follower and do science. God, I pray that their life and their voice would be a witness that that isn't the case. And God, I pray that in all of this, that you would give them a deep sense of your calling and purpose on their life, that you would empower them for that. And for all of us, God, I pray that you would make us people who love your world even more, that we would be willing to use our minds to understand it, and that all of this would lead us to praise your great name. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.